You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 32, verses 15 through 35. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. So we pray now that by it, We might understand our own hearts. We pray that you might indeed test our thoughts and our attitudes, and that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart might be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray for all these things for Christ's sake and for our own good. Amen. You may be seated. 
It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, like a nincompoop this morning, uh, I was working in my attic and kicked up a bunch of like insulation dust and inhaled some fiberglass dust. Uh, so you'll excuse me or if you'll forgive me for maybe drinking a little bit of water from time to time. Since we were like all toddlers, we all do our best to get out of consequences, get out of consequences of sin or just get out of consequences just from real life. Uh, This week I read a a tweet thread from a guy who was on a train uh, in Northern England going up to Scotland and uh, this guy got, uh, he sat down opposite of him and he uh, started sleeping for about an hour or so and then he bought a sandwich and he went back to sleep and uh, the ticket taker finally comes by and asks for the guy's ticket, and he wakes, he wakes up this guy, and uh, the guy wakes up, looks around for a few seconds, he says, I actually need to buy a ticket. And he says, okay, for how, when did you get on? And he's like, and he says, the stop just prior, like a few minutes ago, not like over the hours that he's actually been on the train. And he says, are you sure you didn't get on earlier? And he's like, nope. And he says, uh, sir, this is a receipt uh, from an hour ago. Uh, and he says, uh, that's not my receipt. And he says, sir, this is a sandwich rece- receipt from an hour ago, and you have crumbs all over you. He says, uh, well, I bought a sandwich before I got on the train. Uh, I've carried the crumbs on, and that's not my receipt. He says, all right, well, I'll just charge you for the, the five minutes or so that you've been on the train. Uh, and so he takes his credit card, swipes it, and then looks at it, and he says, sir, this uh, credit card matches the credit card number on the receipt uh, that you purchased a sandwich from on this train over an hour ago. Um, and he's, he, he got him, right? <laughs> and now aside from this uh, ticket taker being like a modern day Sherlock Holmes who happens to just work on the trains in England, uh, we all do our best to just evade any kind of responsibility, any kind of consequence. Maybe not in such a blatant double down kind of way as this guy on the train in Northern England, but we all want as much as we can get away with, with as little uh, consequence that it may bring. Well, last week in the first half of Exodus 32, we saw God's anger kindled against the people who had rejected him on their very honeymoon. While God relented from completely destroying the entire nation, Starting over with Moses, we'll tonight see that despite our very best excuses, we need a mediator to absorb the very, very real consequences of sin. So we're going to just walk our way through the narrative uh, this evening in four parts, focusing on four different characters or groups of characters. The anger of Moses, the excuses of Aaron, the decision of the people, and the response of God. So first of all, the anger of Moses, picking up at verse 15 from last week, uh, God relents from destroying the people. So, and if you've got questions, theological questions that even that brings up, maybe you can go back and find that uh, sermon from last week, or we'd be happy to talk after the service tonight. But Moses goes down with the tablets, uh, with the Ten Commandments on them. Remember, he's been gone for a while. Joshua, who had stayed a little bit further down from the place on the mountain where Moses was meeting with God, uh, joins Moses as both of them are now coming down the mountain and being the warrior general that Joshua is. uh, He hears a noise in the camp and assumes there is a great battle going on. Maybe God had decided to come and wipe out all the people and he had sent like the Amalekites or some other army to come and destroy them to accomplish his purposes. So as they hear this noise, their pace must have picked up a bit and as they get closer, they realize, no, this isn't the sound of battle. It's not a war, but it's the sound of singing. 
The last time the people were singing in the book of Exodus, it was in chapter 15, right after God had brought them through the Red Sea and delivered them from the Egyptians. The singing has returned now, but not in a joyful expression of the worship of God, but in a sinful expression of the worship of idols. So Moses rounds the corner and he sees what's happening. And remember, it's not just that the people are singing and that they are worshiping a idol that is made out of gold. The people have risen up to play, we saw last week, which, was, which is just like the euphemism of all euphemisms. This is what, the, what Moses rounds the corner and sees, and he is horrified. These are the people of God that God has brought out to be his treasured possession. These are the people of God whom he has brought out to be a kingdom of priests to maintain and to participate in the right worship of Yahweh. And they have lasted just a couple of days before they have rejected God and before they have rejected their role as priests. And Moses is furious. He takes the two tablets on which God himself has written the Ten Commandments and he smashes them, almost to say as if Israel does not care to obey the law, they do not deserve to have it. And his anger continues. He melts down the idol, he smashes it into powder, and he makes the entire nation drink some. This always reminds me of, if you've ever seen uh, the 30 for 30 uh, documentary on Steve Bartman and the Chicago Cubs, uh, they, somebody got a hold of that famous ball uh, where they lost that game in the NLCS, and they ground it down into strings, and they ground it all down and put it into a spaghetti sauce. And they all, all these Cubs fans ate uh, a ground-up ball in spaghetti to just like excise the curse of Steve Bartman. But I don't know if that's what's going on here or what. I have no idea how long all of this would have taken. Moses firing this uh, golden calf, smashing it down into powder, putting it into water, and then having everyone of the nation of Israel drinking it. It's really weird stuff. And it's like a drawn-out waiting process, like the kind of punishment where, like, uh, your father will talk to you when you get home. Like, it's like the, the, the waiting of it all is almost worse than the actual punishment. But it's really weird. Now, it's possible that Moses is, like, sinfully overreacting, that he is, like, just over-the-top, out-of-control, angry. But we are given zero indication from the text that that's the case. Later in the book of Numbers, Moses will again become angry at the people and become so angry that he does respond in sin. He disobeys God. And we are told so in that, in that case. But there is nothing in Exodus 32 that suggests that Moses isn't entirely acting for God and on his behalf just like he's done throughout the entirety of Exodus. And this will be helpful for us in a bit as we get to the third section of our text. But destruction of the idol is a good reminder of what we thought through two weeks ago in pursuing first things and pursuing second things. If you pursue first things, that of God, that of wisdom, that of knowing Christ, then you get all of the second things thrown in, that of joy and peace and all of these other things. Uh, kinds of characteristics of life. But if you pursue the lower second things, then you get neither. Well, God has been extraordinarily kind in moving the nation of Egypt to give them their gold, give Israel their gold, or give them their gold on their way out of town. This gold was to be, was to be used for the worship of Yahweh. All this gold was to be used for the tabernacle. It was to be a settled pointer to God's glory and Israel's place 
as his people. And instead, they have used this gold as a cheap imitation. And not only do they lose the imitation of the idol, the golden calf doesn't exist any longer, but they lost the very gold as well. It would now be, just think about it. Maybe you don't want to think about it. All this gold is just going to be now mixed into human waste and lost into the desert forever. Not to be used, not to be remembered. All sin is misplaced worship. It is misdirected love. It is idolatry. It is a twisting of the good gifts that God has given to humanity. And so we worship our achievements. We worship our reputations. We worship money and the getting of more and more stuff. We worship our good grades and our good jobs. We worship our bodies and our health and our perpetual youth. We worship sexual expression and fulfillment and the ideal romantic partner. We worship our children and how we think that they can further enhance our reputations and what people think of us. And in beholding all of these created things, these small things that were never intended and are not worthy to hold eternal worship. We don't understand all these things as second things, to be enjoyed as good gifts, but never to be worshiped as gods. And then we just end up losing all of it. So we're unsatisfied with the goodness and kindness of God, and then we become unsatisfied with our jobs that he's given us as good gifts. We find little joy in the Lord, and then we find little joy in our sexuality or our singleness. The gifts that God gives us becomes ground up powder and waste. So it appears that Moses is responding to the people in the exact way that they have earned. Like Jesus in the temple who would also cleanse out all of the imitative worship of God with anger because of his love for God and his desire for the pure and right worship of God. So first, after we see Moses' anger, next let's see the excuses of Aaron. Moses comes to Aaron and thinking, asking, like, surely, what did they do to you to make this happen? To which Aaron's reply in verse 24, which I heard some of you rightfully like snicker at. This is just a ridiculous scenario. He said that he threw all the gold that they gave him into the fire and just out came this calf. This scene always makes me think of when I walk into a bookstore and I walk out and my wife says like, what the heck, dude? Because I've got like a stack of like 10 books that I just spent like 150 bucks on or something. And I'm like, I just walked into the bookstore. I don't know what happened. I like out came all these books. But for sure, Aaron is trying to avoid any responsibility, any consequences. Like the guy at the train, like, that's not my receipt. Like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. It's not my golden calf. But even more than just evading a responsibility, there's something even more brilliantly going on here, just in the, the flow and the narrative of the Bible. We've been in Exodus for a long time, so let's refresh some of our memories here. We have said that much of the Exodus story is that of a recreation story, that of a uh, redo of Genesis 1 and 2. The plagues and the setup of the law mirror so much of the language and the structure of what God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2 in creation. The tabernacle structure is intentionally meant to remind Israel of Eden, where they lived in the near presence of God and in peace and love with God. God is recreating what the fall of Adam and Eve has corrupted, what sin has corrupted. So in Genesis 3, we saw, or we have seen, or you can read this evening, that Eve sees that the fruit was good or that the fruit was beautiful, and so she takes and she eats. 
seeing and taking. She reinterprets what God has said is good and instead says, no, I I know better. I'll do and take what I think is good and is right. And so while we don't have time to go through the rest of the book of Genesis this evening, this is an intentional design of the author uh, as the author has given us the narrative in Genesis and on into Exodus of, of repetition. The sons of God in Genesis 6, they see the daughters of men are beautiful or good, and they take them, seeing and taking. Abraham and Isaac are both afraid of foreign kings, seeing that their wives are beautiful, that they would take them. The men of Sodom in Genesis 19, they want to take Lot's get, get his guests. Sarah, who is childless, she sees their servant Hagar, and she takes Hagar, and she gives Hagar to Abraham, her husband, as an additional wife, that she might grab hold of what she thinks might be the good and right way. The picture being painted that created and human beings will daily come to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and will over and over and over again choose knowledge for themselves. They will choose their word instead of God's word. They will choose the kingdom of man as rebels against the kingdom of God. Well, in Exodus 32, the people, they see that Moses has been gone, and then the people see their gold, and then in the word, in verse 4, or verse, where am I? Not verse 4. Where Moses, where Aaron receives all of this gold, uh, this is the same Hebrew word for taking. So he sees all of this gold that has been given to him, and then he takes it. Throughout Exodus, God has been recreating Eden, and then this scene now becomes Eden 2.0. This is Genesis 3 all over again. The golden calf becomes the original sin of Israel's history, and in fact, this will become the time that the prophets will later point back to more often than any. So if this scene is a Genesis 3 redo of the people coming to the tree again and choosing for themselves their own word, choosing worship of the self over the worship of God, then we shouldn't be surprised at all to find Aaron's response to Moses looking very similar to Adam's response to God in Genesis 3, full of blame shifting, full of excuse making. Adam said in Genesis 3, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And then Aaron says, you know the people, like they're just set on evil. They made me do it. I'm not even sure how it happened. Like I I just threw in all the gold that they gave me and then out popped this calf. Reading Aaron's response all by itself, we think, well, that is just ridiculously stupid. And we rightfully kind of laugh at Aaron. But placing this scene in the long line of human sin, putting uh, putting this narrative of the stupidity of sin over and over and over again, and then objectively comparing it to our own lives of blame shifting, our own lives of excuse making, we can say, well, yeah, sin just makes us ridiculously stupid. If anything, if sin does anything, it just makes us dumb and stupid, willing to make all kinds of stupid excuses. I was chatting with Michael Bastaros this week about this passage, and he said that Aaron is the character that he most identifies with, not because it makes him stupid, uh, but because of what this story is meant to do. Michael said that Aaron is strong when there is strength around, but he's prone to quickly wander despite the amazing blessings around him, and boy, ain't that the truth. Aaron is just a courageous man of God when his brother's around. 
when things are going well and we're surrounded by people who are also courageously pursuing the Lord, it's actually not terribly difficult to believe, to act upon what is true and in what is right, to be strong when there is strength around. But when life takes an unexpected turn into uncertainty, into suffering, when you feel alone to choose to believe God's promises, and boy, have these last two weeks carried with them a bunch of unexpected turns into uncertainty and suffering for many of you in this room this evening. Walking by faith means to choose to believe in the darkness what you have believed to be true in the light. And not even in intense times of sickness, times of suffering or death, but just in the day-to-day mundanity, in the day-to-day boredom and even anxiousness of life. We are brought to the tree of trusting in God's word or not, and then more than we'd like to admit, more often than not, then we will see and take what we want when we want it. And then putting up like this force field of excuses for why I was justifiable in my decision-making in that moment, blaming anyone and anything but ourselves, the way that she was speaking. It just made me angry, so I can't be held accountable. Others have been neglecting me or not caring for me in the way that they should, so I'm justified in my funneling in on myself, on my choosing the self over God, and on and on and on. No doubt there are many difficult external circumstances outside of us, but nothing external causes us to sin internally. There is plenty of self-worship and plenty of selfishness inside enough for that. But the kind of worship, the worship of the self, of comfort, of gods who are not God, even the kind of gods that we call God, but are really just images that we have made of what we think that God is like, can't do anything. One theologian has said, religious faith in general Prayers addressed to a to whom it may concern, the sentiment about some sort of transcendent dimension or unknown God, it does not have any staying power. It's okay to maybe have that at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning or when you're out with friends somewhere, but in the darkest hours of life, you've got to believe something specific. Specific promises of God, specific descriptions of his character, and then choosing to believe those specific truths of God in times of darkness. Not shirking responsibility and blaming circumstances or blaming others to not trust in the goodness or the nearness of God. And so Aaron never really owns up to anything, but at least he seems to not like the way that this has all turned out. He has now been confronted with his brother and with the character of God, and he at least appears to feel bad about it. But what about the rest of the people? Third, now, the decision of the people. There is chaos in the camp. People are, the word is breaking loose. They're like running away, whether it's for fear of Moses, for fear of God, or just like not wanting to drink this gold water, or just wanting to keep doing whatever they want. There is chaos. People are leaving. There is disorder. Genesis 3 has brought about the undoing of the un, and the unraveling of the good order of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So Moses stands up and he yells with, I can't imagine, the kind of booming anger 
but yet conviction. Who is with the Lord? Who is on the Lord's side? After all that has gone down over the last day or two of this kind of just revelry, come to me if you are with the Lord. There is a real and actual decision that is to be made when confronted with the reality of sin and idolatry. Will these people turn and repent? Will they turn from the direction in which they were going to trust the Lord, to turn to the Lord? Or will they continue on with their back to God? And this is the question that Moses asks of the people on this day in Exodus 32, and it is the question that is confronting us tonight. I recently read one pastor say, repentance is not what radical Christians do. Repentance is what Christians do. This is the whole of the Christian life. Martin Luther says that the whole of the Christian life is that of repentance, of agreeing with God about the nature of your sin and turning from it. Ongoingly, continually being confronted with the nature of your sin and hating it, of more and more realizing it and agreeing with God. In Exodus 32, some in Israel agree with Moses, agree with God about the nature of their idolatry, but some don't. The Levites, who are Moses and Aaron's tribe, they all come to Moses. We're not sure if they were fully involved in the worship of the calf or if they were just kind of standing over on the side with their arms crossed but not doing anything to stop it or what. But they've been confronted by the right worship of God, and now they are rejuvenated to stand with Yahweh. And then a very difficult command is given to the Levites. Moses tells them to get a sword and go kill your neighbors. Not all, but it appears to kill those who would not repent, would not come to stand with Yahweh. Perhaps those who were like just brazenly opposed to the right worship of God and instead wanted to stand with the idol. And these 3,000 were killed this day, killed with swords. Like, we can just pass by that like, and not really think about just the gruesome nature, the horror of the scene of this day. And this is difficult, like no doubt about it. This is often a scene in which modern readers of the Bible will look to this and say, nope, I'm out. This is a weird book, or this is an immoral God. So how should we think about this? Well, first of all, again, there is nothing here to suggest that this was a sinful overreaction from Moses. Many people will say, well, Moses thought he was hearing from God. He thought he was doing what was right. But clearly, now knowing what we know about the way that God has fully expressed himself in Jesus, uh, it, Jesus would have had Moses just uh, love his enemies. But what comes before and even what comes immediately after this suggestion suggests that Moses is actually carrying out God's will. We've already thought a bit about death and killing in the Old Testament with the plagues and with the war with the Amalekites in Exodus 17, but just a refresher, a few things here. As the maker of all things and as the ruler of all people, God has absolute rights and has absolute ownership over all people and over all places, meaning as the creator, God himself can do whatever he wants to with the universe and with individual people. Now, if that rubs us the wrong way, though, that's just a starter. Secondly, God is not only the ultimate maker, not only the ultimate ruler and owner of all people in places, but he is always just and righteous in all that he does. 
So by merely asking the question, is this fair that God does something? Is this moral that God does something? Presumes that we are actual the arbiter and judge of what is right and wrong. Presuming that God is acting immorally is to claim that you have a universal grasp on morality. Especially in this day and age, living in a time of expressive individualism, we are so shaped into thinking that the most ultimate good must be the most ultimate good for all humans and the most ultimate good for the universe is that which advances or furthers individual freedom and autonomy. And so anything that inhibits or limits individual freedom and autonomy must be an immoral act. So of course, a text like this strikes us as out of touch or even as awful because it is grating against one of our highest and most deeply held Western beliefs and values, perhaps grading against one of our most deeply held Western golden calves, that of the self. Even if the autonomy of the self means harm to God's glory and means harm to God's people, might even mean harm to the cosmos. So God is always just and righteous in all that he does. But also, and third, all of us deserve God's justice. None of us deserve God's mercy. So again, the question is never, how can a loving God send people to hell? Or in this text, how could a loving God apply justice in death by the sword? But rather, how can a just and a righteous God allow sinful, allow idolatrous, rebellious, hateful, angry, selfish people into heaven? Or for our text, how can he allow these kinds of rebels to keep living? There is no innocent man on the desert island. In response to our sin, the question is not if we are going to die, but when. And every breath and every heartbeat that we sinful people receive is only because of God's grace, is only because of his mercy. We are not owed another day of life because of our rebellion against him. But we can also not conclude that bloody and gory death is always God's response to brazen idolatry and sexual immorality. These were a specific people, the covenant people of God, in a specific time, having just been redeemed from Egypt and now having just entered into covenant with God. And these specific people in a specific time are breaking specific terms of a specific covenant. They have shown themselves to not be the people of God, his royal priests. They have shown themselves to actually be his enemies. They're showing themselves to be no different from the Egyptians. So we mustn't assume that every time of idolatry or sexual morality now, uh, God wants to respond with bloody and gory death. There will be plenty of times for centuries and generations where Israel doesn't live much better than they are living this day here at Sinai. And their response then isn't the same. Much less for the new covenant people of God who are not made up of an ethnic people populating a geographic land in a theocratic political kingdom. The kingdom of Christ on this side of the cross is a spiritual reality with very real physical and political effects. But as Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Our weapons are not swords. And on this side of the cross, we do not kill our enemies. We love them. 
But that is not to say that Moses or the people of Israel were wrong to do so, that they were misunderstanding God. And that is not to say that God is not equally concerned about the holiness and the purity of his people and the worship of his people. God has not commanded or authorized the church to use the sword to declare who belongs to the people of God and who doesn't, but he has given them a tool, the so-called keys of the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus gives to the church in Matthew 18, not to kill, but to bind into church membership those who have demonstrated credible professions of faith, and to release in church discipline those who are living in similar, idolatrous, prolonged periods of unrepentance. God cares deeply about the people who claim to belong to him. He cares about their worship. He cares about their lives. He cares about their reputations. He cares about his reputation. And if any of that sounds weird, sounds new, confusing, well, good news, we've got a membership class coming up on March 6th and 7th. We can talk more about all this, talk more about the tool that God has given the church, not a sword, but the keys. I hope you'll join us. I promise that we will not have swords. We might have muffins, uh, not swords. There's certainly a sense, though, in which all people must hear the call of Moses, the invitation of Moses, of who is on the Lord's side. And maybe tonight you actually need to say for the first time, I am. I am on the Lord's side. The life of living only for myself is done. Though my sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And I'm going to push all my chips on that being true. Maybe that might be your response tonight for the very first time, that you might agree with God about the nature of your sin and say, I am with Christ. All other ground is sinking sand. Faith in Christ alone is what saves, but there is also, just as the people must have stood up and walked to Jesus, or walked to Moses, come to him physically, there is a visible and physical movement that goes with the profession of Christ in the new covenant of Christ, that of saying, I am with the Lord in baptism. I am with the Lord and his people in church membership. I am with the Lord and his people in regularly coming to the table. It appears most of the people in Exodus 32, they respond in repentance. They respond with allegiance to the Lord, while some of them don't. And the Lord Jesus promises a day of judgment far worse than this, for those who will not come and be found in him. Do not be found on your own any longer. Come to Christ and tonight say that I am with the Lord. But now lastly, things don't quite go as we might have thought with the response of God. Moses knows that things aren't just fine, aren't just completely back to normal, We just turn back the clock a few days and they're like just back where they were. From the second commandment, Moses knows that there are very real generational consequences for this kind of idolatry. And so he essentially says in verse 33, like, guys, let me see what I can do. I actually don't have any other reasons for why there shouldn't still be some response for God from this unbelievably great sin, but let me see if I can go make atonement for your sin. I'll give it a shot. 
So Moses begs of the Lord to forgive their sin, to cleanse them, and to choose not to remember this day and to hold this day against them in the future. He then even says, blot me out of your book forever if that will be the means of their forgiveness. This is likely referring to books of ancient kingdoms like a census book, a book of just the name of every citizen in the kingdom. Moses is saying, remove my name from your kingdom if it will be the means of their forgiveness. But then, God says no. Those who have sinned so horribly with this calf and the worship surrounding it would actually have their names blotted out. And God sends a plague on all of the people. We have no idea what this plague was, but there are very real consequences for their sin. No matter how many excuses were given, whether it's some kind of a sickness on them or whether this is the plague is that later they aren't allowed to enter into the land, all of that is interconnected in the narrative that's coming. But here's the thing. This episode at the end of this chapter is kind of surprising, right? We Christians who understand the gospel, we Christians who... Man, Moses is saying, like, blot me out. And the way that we understand the gospel of substitution, the way that we are understanding the gospel of the Passover lamb, which dies so that the people of Israel can be redeemed from Egypt, we're like, yeah, here it is. God will blot Moses out and allow the people to be forgiven. But God says no. But God doesn't say no to Moses because he doesn't like the idea. He says no to Moses because Moses isn't a suitable substitute. He can't possibly bear the sins of the entire nation of Israel, of the weight of this kind of idolatry upon his shoulders because he himself is a weak and frail sinner. But of course, all of this is preparing us for the one who can. The old illustration perhaps No better scene in the Old Testament than here in Exodus 32 is that of a movie or a TV stand-in. Like if Tom Cruise is doing a movie, you want to use your time with Tom Cruise really well and efficiently, so before Tom Cruise shows up to the set, you'll get a guy, just a guy, of the same size and build of Tom Cruise, maybe even wearing the same costume, to just stand there. All the actors can get around and figure out their marks and where they're going to be the the sound and the lighting and the set can be just right with this stand-in. So you don't have to have Tom Cruise stand there and waste an hour to get the lighting and the sound and the other actors and the set just right. You want Tom Cruise to just walk on the scene and say, action, here we go. Well, Moses here, Abraham, David, Daniel, and so many others throughout the Old Testament are just stand-ins for the one to come, so that when Jesus of Nazareth walks on the scene, there is a palpable excitement. The stakes are higher because now we understand the setting. We have the sound just right. The lighting and the scope of the scene and the story are here. And when Jesus walks on the scene, there is action. When Jesus goes to the cross, he offers himself as a substitute. Blot me out of your book that they may be forgiven because he can bear all of your sin. Moses, the lambs throughout the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, none of these could bear the sin of humanity, all of our sin, your idolatry, your immorality, your indifference. 
but Christ alone can, that you might find forgiveness and that you might find confident assurance in the welcoming forgiveness and love of God. Maybe you'd look back on your life and see it as one long line that just traces the line of the Old Testament story. That of seeing and taking. That of seeing things in life that look good, beautiful, desirable, and then taking over and against what God has said. Of hearing and believing the serpent's lies of take and eat. Well, Jesus, full of pity, grace, and power, comes to his people and he welcomes them to himself and he says, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And this is the good news of the gospel, that we might be welcomed in, weak, rebellious sinners as the very sons and daughters of God. I pray that you're believing this. I pray that you are growing in your depth of trust in this good news. Let's continue to do this together as a church. And let me ask God that he would help us as we do. Our Father, we are thankful for your grace. We have no claim to the throne of Christ apart from his work. We have no power to walk in obedience, to walk in uh, the right worship of God apart from the work of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us anew, that you would... Uh, empower us to see what is good and to believe. We pray that you would bring life where there is not life tonight. We pray that you would be, bring repentance where there, where there is no repentance. We pray that you would help us to take and to eat ongoingly and continually. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.